This is Songwriter, the podcast of stories and answer songs. My name is Ben Arthur. Today's episode features a song by my old friend, Rebecca Rigo. But first, the story that inspires the song by Lucia Berlin. Lucia wrote darkly realistic fiction decades before it became fashionable, and it was only years after her death that she became a best-selling author with her collection, Manual for Cleaning Women. Though Lucia is gone, we have an old friend and former student who can tell us about her life and read her story. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Gehagen, and Lucia Berlin was my mentor and my dear friend. I met her in Boulder, Colorado in 1994. At the time, she was a fairly unknown author, and we wrote letters for 10 years before she died. I visited her before she died. I spoke at her funeral. Just kind of, you know, we were close. We We just clicked. She was born in 1936 in Alaska, and her her father was a mining engineer. And she lived all over the West as a child in these rough mining camps. And her mom was a horrible alcoholic, and they moved to Chile when she was a teenager, like early, like 13 or something. They kind of jumped class at that point because they were in South America. They had maids, and they were in this kind of upper class. Her father was considered this big deal then. Lucia at 14 was five foot 11 and looked like um, Elizabeth Taylor. She was very much a part of like a country club scene in South America and she became bilingual. She studied in New Mexico and she had this love affair and her parents found out and they were gonna ship her off to Europe. So she, they forced her to break up with this guy and so she turned around and married this sculptor named Paul Sutman. She was not yet 19, I don't think. They disowned her. And, and so she had a baby to keep him out of the Korean conflict. And th- she got pregnant second, like seconds after she had the first kid. And he ditched her when she was pregnant with her second kid and moved to Rome. He run, won the Rome Prize. So there she was in New Mexico going to school, studying Spanish literature and had two kid, little kids. She met this jazz musician named Ray Newton and she married him. But she fell in love with his best friend who was Buddy Berlin and then Race was always touring with the jazz band and Buddy was always kind of in New Mexico like helping her change diapers and stuff and so when Race caught wind of it he moved her to New York and then at a certain point Buddy Berlin like called her from a payphone downstairs on the street and said I'm here and I have four tickets to Acapulco and she woke up her kids and they left. So she runs off with Buddy. She's not even 30 yet. He adopts the first two kids. They have two more kids. They moved to Mexico. It's now the 1960s. And he had a terrible heroin problem and he started using again. And she eventually left him. So she never married again. And so she was 32 and raised four kids on her own and just went from kind of affluence to poverty to affluence to poverty, you know, and became alcoholic herself and then you know it's just an incredible story and so she wrote 77 short stories in her life and nobody knew her name (laughs) and then in 2004 she dies and all her books are out of print 10 years after lucia's death manual for cleaning women was published it was book of the year in italy and spain and Colombia and all the Spanish-speaking countries. They just love her. And now Pedro Almodovar is going to make a film of five of the stories from this collection.
so the story Mama is pretty autobiographical because her mom was always trying to kill herself and she would leave Lucia these terrible notes and sign them like Bloody Mary and stuff like that. You know, like she had a real wicked sense of humor. When her sister got cancer, Lucia basically quit her life in Oakland and pulled up stakes to go. They'd always been a little bit estranged and but but you know they loved each other but they were somewhat estranged and i think it's very much a story of she and her sister coming to terms with both their relationship and their upbringing and their um their estrangement from their parents and kind of falling in love with each other in a way you know and it shows their personalities very clearly if you read Lucia's letters because the one character is like, you know, the one with the closing line is like, me, I have no mercy. That's Lucia for sure. And the other one is her little sister who's like, oh, pobrecita, pobrecita. Here's Elizabeth Gehagen reading Mama by Lucia Berlin. Mama knew everything, my sister Sally said. She was a witch. Even now that she's a dad, I get scared she can see me. Me too. If I'm doing something really lame, that's when I worry. The pitiful part is that when I do something right, I'll hope she can. Hey, Mama, check it out. What if the dead just hang out looking at us all, laughing their heads off? God, Sally, that sounds like something she'd say. What if I'm just like her? Our mother wondered what chairs would look like if our knees bent the other way. What if Christ had been electrocuted? Instead of crosses on chains, everybody would be running around wearing chairs around their necks. She told me, Whatever you do, don't breed, Sally said. And if I were dumb enough to ever marry, be sure he was rich and adored me. Never, ever marry for love. If you love a man, you'll want to be with him, please him, do things for him. You'll ask him things like, Where have you been? Or... What are you thinking about? Or do you love me? So he'll beat you up or go out for cigarettes and never come back. She hated the word love. She said it the way other people say the word slut. She hated children. I met her once at an airport when all four of my kids were little. She yelled, call them off, as if they were a pack of Dobermans. I don't know if she disowned me because I married a Mexican or because he was Catholic. She blamed the Catholic Church for people having so many babies. She said popes had started the rumor that love made people happy. Love makes you miserable, our mama said. You soak your pillow crying yourself to sleep. You steam up phone booths with your tears. Your sobs make the dog holler. You smoke two cigarettes at once. Did daddy make you miserable, I asked her. Who, him? He couldn't make anybody miserable. But I used mama's advice to save my own son's marriage. Coco, his wife, called me crying away. Ken wanted to move out for a few months. He needed his space. Coco adored him. She was desperate. I found myself giving her advice in Mama's voice, literally, with her Texan twang, with a sneer. Just you give that fool a little old taste of his own medicine. I told her never to ask him back. Don't call him. Send yourself flowers with mysterious cards. Teach his African gray parrot to say, Hello, Joe. I advised her to stock up on men handsome debonair men. Pay them if necessary, just to hang out at their place. Take them to Chez Panisse for lunch. Be sure different men were sitting around whenever Ken was likely to show up to get clothes or visit his bird. Coco kept calling me. Yes, she was doing what I told her, but he still hadn't come home. She didn't sound so miserable, though. Finally, one day, Ken called me. Yo, Mom, get this. Coco is such a sleaze. 
I go to get some CDs at our apartment, right? And here's this jock in a purple lycra bicycle suit, probably sweaty, lying on my bed, watching Oprah on my TV, feeding my bird. What can I say? Ken and Coco have lived happily ever after. Just recently, I was visiting them, and the phone rang. Coco answered it, talked for a while, laughing occasionally. When she hung up, Ken asked, Who was that? Coco smiled. Oh, just some guy I met at the gym. Mama ruined my favorite movie, I told Sally, The Song of Bernadette. I was going to school at St. Joseph's then and planned to be a nun, or, preferably, a saint. You were only about three years old then. I saw that movie three times. Finally, she agreed to come with me. She laughed all through it. She said the beautiful lady wasn't the Virgin Mary. It's Dorothy L'Amour, for God's sake. For weeks, she made fun of the Immaculate Conception. Get me a cup of coffee, will you? I can't get up. I'm the Immaculate Conception. Or on the phone to her friend Alice Pomeroy, she'd say, Hi, it's me, the Sweaty Conception. Or, Hi, this is the Two-Second Conception. She was witty, you have to admit it. Like when she'd give panhandlers a nickel and say, Excuse me, young man, but what are your dreams and aspirations? Or when a cab driver was surly, she'd say, You seem rather thoughtful and introspective today. No, even her humor was scary. Through the years, her suicide notes, always written to me, were usually jokes. When she slit her wrist, she signed it, Bloody Mary. When she overdosed, she wrote that she had tried a noose but couldn't get the hang of it. Her last letter to me wasn't funny. It said that she knew I would never forgive her, that she could not forgive me for the wreck I had made of my life. She never wrote me a suicide note. I don't believe it, Sally. You're actually jealous because I got all the suicide notes? Well, yes, I am. When our father died, Sally had flown from Mexico City to California. She went to Mama's house and knocked on the door. Mama looked at her through the window, but she wouldn't let her in. She had disowned Sally years and years before. I miss Daddy, Sally called to her through the glass. I am dying of cancer. I need you now, Mama. Our mother just closed the Venetian blinds and ignored the banging, banging on her door. Sally would sob, replaying the scene and other sadder scenes over and over. Finally, she was very sick and ready to die. She had stopped worrying about her children. She was serene, so lovely and sweet. Still, once in a while, rage grabbed her, not letting her go, denying her peace. So every night, then, I began to tell Sally stories, like telling fairy tales. I told her funny stories about our mother, how once she tried to open a bag of Granny Goose potato chips, then gave up. Life is just too damn hard, she said, and tossed the bag over her shoulder. I told her how Mama hadn't spoken to her brother Fortunatus for 30 years. Finally, he asked her to lunch at the top of the mark to bury the hatchet. In his pompous old head, Mama said. She got him, though. He forced her to have pheasant under glass, and when it came, she said to the waiter, Hey, boy, got any ketchup? Most of all, I told Sally stories about how her mother once was. Before she drank, before she harmed us, once upon a time. Mama is standing at the railing of the ship to Juno. She's going to meet Ed, her new husband, on her way to a new life. It is 1930. She has left the depression behind, Grandpa behind. All the sordid poverty and pain of Texas is gone. The ship is gliding close to land on a clear day. She's looking at the navy blue water and the green pines on the shore of this wild, clean new country. There are icebergs and gulls. The main thing to remember is how tiny she was, only five foot four. 
She just seemed huge to us. So young, 19, she was very beautiful, dark and thin. On the deck of the ship, she sways against the wind. She is frail. She shivers with cold and excitement, smoking. The fur collar pulled up around her heart-shaped face, her jet black hair. Uncle Guyler and Uncle John had bought Mama that coat for a wedding gift. She was still wearing it six years later, so I got to know it, burying my face in the matted nicotine fur. Not while she was wearing it. She couldn't bear to be touched. If you got too close, she'd put her hand up as if to ward off a blow. On the deck of the ship, she feels pretty and grown up. She had made friends on the voyage. She had been witty, charming. The captain flirted with her. He poured her more gin that gave her vertigo and made her laugh out loud when he whispered, You're breaking my heart, you dusky beauty. When the ship got into the harbor of Juno, her blue eyes filled with tears. No, I never once saw her cry either. It was sort of like scarlet and gone with the wind. She swore to herself, no one is ever going to hurt me again. She knew that Ed was a good man, solid and kind. The first time she let him bring her home to Upson Avenue, she'd been drunk, ashamed. It was shabby. Uncle John and Grandpa were drunk. She was afraid Ed wouldn't ask her out again. But he held her in his arms and said, I'm going to protect you. Alaska was as wonderful as she dreamed. They went in ski planes into the wilderness and landed on frozen lakes, skied in the silence and saw elk and polar bears and wolves. They camped in the woods in summer and fished for salmon, saw grizzlies and mountain goats. They made friends. She was in a theater group and played the medium in Blythe Spirit. There were cast parties and potlucks. Then Ed said she couldn't be in the theater anymore because she drank too much, acted in a manner that was beneath her. Then I was born. He had to go to Nome for a few months, and she was alone with a new baby. When he got back, he found her drunk, stumbling around with me in her arms. He ripped you from my breast, she told me. He completely took over my care, fed me from a bottle. An Eskimo woman came in to watch me while he was at work. He told Mama she was weak and bad like all the Moynihans. He protected her from herself. From then on, didn't let her drive or have any money. All she could do was walk to the library and read plays and mysteries and Zane Gray. When the war came, you were born, and we went to live in Texas. Daddy was a lieutenant on an ammunition ship off Japan. Mama hated being back home. She was out most of the time, drinking more and more. Mamie stopped working at Grandpa's office so that she could take care of you. She moved her crib into her room. She played with you and sang to you and rocked you to sleep. She didn't let anybody near you, not even me. It was terrible for me with Mama and with Grandpa, or alone most of the time. I got in trouble at school, ran away from one school, was expelled from two others. Once, I didn't speak for six months. Mama called me the bad seed. All her rage came down on me. It wasn't until I grew up that I realized she and Grandpa probably didn't even remember what they did. God sends drunks blackouts because if they knew what they had done, they would surely die of shame. After Daddy got back from the war, we lived in Arizona and they were happy together. They planted roses and gave you a puppy called Sam and she was sober. But already she didn't know how to be with you and me. We thought she hated us, but she was only afraid of us. She felt it was we who had abandoned her, that we hated her. She protected herself by mocking us and sneering, by hurting us, so we couldn't hurt her first. It seemed that moving to Chile would be a dream come true for Mama. 
She loved elegance and beautiful things, always wished she knew the right people. Daddy had a prestigious job. We were wealthy now, with a lovely house and many servants, and there were dinners and parties with all the right people. She went out some at first, but she was simply too scared. Her hair was wrong. Her clothes were wrong. She bought expensive imitation antique furniture and bad paintings. She was terrified of the servants. She had a few friends that she trusted. Ironically enough, she played poker with Jesuit priests. But most of the time, she stayed in her room, and Daddy kept her there. At first he was my keeper, then he was my jailer, she said. He thought he was helping her, but year after year he rationed drinks to her and hid her and never got her any help. We never went near her. Nobody did. She'd fly into rages, cruel, irrational. We thought nothing we did was good enough for her. And she did hate to see us do well, to grow and accomplish things. We were young and pretty and had a future. Do you see how hard it was for her, Sally? Yes, it was like that. Poor pitiful mama. You know, I'm like her now. I get mad at everyone because they're working, living. Sometimes I hate you because you're not dying. Isn't that awful? No, because you can tell me this, and I can tell you that I'm glad it's not me that is dying. But Mama never had a soul to tell anything to. That day on the ship coming into port, she thought she would. Mama believed Ed would be there always. She thought she was coming home. Tell me about her again on the boat when she had tears in her eyes. Okay. She tosses her cigarette into the water. You can hear it hiss as the waves are calm near the shore. The engines of the boat turn off with a shudder. Silently then, in the sound of the buoys and the gulls and the mournful long whistle of the boat, they glide toward the berth in the harbor, banging softly against the tires on the dock. Mama smooths down her collar and her hair. Smiling, she looks out at the crowd, searching for her husband. She's never before known such happiness. Sally is crying softly. Pobrecita, pobrecita, she says. If only I could have been able to speak to her, if I had let her know how much I loved her. Me, I have no mercy. was Elizabeth Gehagen reading Mama by Lucia Berlin. And now for the song written in response. For years, it was the responsibility of young singer-songwriters to go out and book tours all around the United States in an effort not only to connect with an audience and sell some CDs, but also to try to convince the labels and the agents and the publishers, all the various money men, that you were an ongoing concern, that they should invest in you. The problem, of course, is that there's no money in it. The shows pay next to nothing. The gas is expensive. Hotels are expensive. Life on the road is expensive. And meanwhile, back home, God forbid, in a city like New York or L.A. or Nashville, your rent is still due. And your day job is only so patient. During a tour like this years ago, I met Rebecca Rigo, who had organized a show in Chicago. And the reason she made such an impression on me is that after the show, she insisted that I keep all of the $200 or whatever we'd made that night for myself on the road, even though she too was working hand to mouth like any other musician. 
I was so grateful for the generosity. I needed the money. And ever since then, I have remained a fan and a friend of Rebecca Rigo. Which is why I was so delighted when we ran into each other in Louisville last year and she told me about her new project, writing songs in response to stories from Manual for Cleaning Women. I asked Rebecca what it was about Lucia's work that made such an impression on her as an artist. She was pretty unrelenting in the way that she was going to write. I think sometimes when people have a vision and they're you know, and they're out for that vision. A lot of times, like, it takes a really long time for anyone to see the future, to see what that is. They're seeing the future. And a lot of times that future takes a really long time to catch up with their art. The, you know, the verses sort of loosely follow through the story itself. And the, the sort of conclusion of that, that story is so beautiful because I think like with most women, it's like we have complicated relationships with our families, um, but a lot of times we'll have a complicated relationship with, you know, our same-sex parents. The one thing I love about that story is at the end, Lucia's like, yeah, she's she had this rough life and, and there's these things we don't like about her, but like, and now there's this little thing that I'm doing that's like her. In the song, I imagine that her mother is buried in Texas and uh, that she's like driving through Texas, like thinking about her mother and thinking about all those things sort of just like, like in the desert. So that's sort of how the story in the song is said, so. This is Rebecca Rigo with a studio recording of her song, Mama. Mama said nothing good ever comes from love You soak your pillow with tears and smoke two cigarettes at once And she'd write me all the suicide notes At least I knew she'd think about me before she'd go She disowned law when she moved to Mexico wouldn't even let her in when she got sick and came home and There's a story God wrote about us Before we could even talk There's a wind that blows across Texas And they buried you under the stars And I think about you Just 19 She chain smoked with the captain Laughed and drank gin She was off then to marry Ed All the things she could have done If she wasn't run by men There's a story God wrote about us Before we could even talk there's a wind that blows across Texas Then I'm driving out here in the dark And I think about you She hated to see us grow 
do well Have a future and get beautiful It's sad to say I'm the same way to you Every action I take is a little jealousy youth There's a story God wrote about us Before we get in talk There's a wind That was Rebecca Rigo with her song, Mama, written in response to a story of the same name by Lucia Berlin. For a live show with Rebecca and Elizabeth, I wrote a song in response to Mama as well. The song is called Mercy Redux, and you can hear it anywhere music streams. The next episode of Songwriter will feature an excerpt from A Theater for Dreamers read by author Polly Sampson and a song written in response by Polly and her husband, David Gilmore, of the band Pink Floyd. A sneak preview of that episode and every episode of Songwriter will be available at Paste. Just go to pastemagazine.com and search for Ben Arthur. And while you're there, check out the Paste podcast or get it wherever you get yours. Last, thanks as always to Rob Reinhardt and Acoustic Cafe.